Well, we are in a little series on Nehemiah, a kind of whistle-stop tour of the book, and just a reminder of where we've been. Uh, This is in a particular historical context, and Nehemiah has asked permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls um, after they've been in exile in Babylon. And uh, when, when we started this series, I asked you to remember something. What was it? Of course. Uh, Remember the chair because chairs are for people. Well done. And I mean that. And that was that was about three weeks ago. So that's pretty good. Um, And the point of a project like the one that Nehemiah was working on was not because he was interested in rebuilding walls. It was because he cared about the reputation of the city and the security of the people. He was a man for God and a man for people. Tom talked about Nehemiah's courageous faith. And I, do you remember Tom talking about the audacious ask that Nehemiah made? And then last week, Rachel talked about doing this work for the glory of God. So as we come into chapter 5, and we've skipped chapter 4, but I'll mention it briefly. Uh, the context is that we, uh, Nehemiah is serving a great God. We read about that in the prayer right at the start in chapter 1. He's serving a great and awesome God, Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5. And he's embarked on a great project. The work is extensive and spread out, Nehemiah 4 chapter 19. They are working all over the place on this enormous project to get the job done to restore the safety, the reputation of the city for the well-being of the people and for the glory of God. It's a work of faith, not just of building. But then in the context of this great work, there is an outcry. Things start to go wrong. There's already been external opposition, and this is what chapter 4 was about. Uh, And so the people had to not only work, but also protect themselves from attack. And they divided themselves up so that half were working on the wall and half were standing on guard. This is a wonderful picture of prayer. Often used, if ever you go to a kind of a workshop on prayer and intercession, this passage is often used. This picture of some folks being on the front line and others standing guard, keeping watch. So if you take nothing else from this morning, please hear this. Who are you praying for? Who are you holding up in prayer? Will you do that if you haven't already got a few people that you're holding up in prayer? Will you just ask the Holy Spirit, who in the All Saints Church family or beyond would you like me to be praying for? And how can I hold them up? And I trust that as you do that, that he'll give you a really simple prayer that you can pray for them. But then the problems come and there's famine. And so, of course, there's food shortages. And this great outcry comes up in the midst of the work. There are four groups here. The first group are 
the kind of general population who are going hungry. They don't have the assets, the land, the resources to be able to sustain themselves during this time. Then there are the landowners, but you know they run into a different sort of problems, don't they? They, they are running into problems not because they don't have much, but actually because they do have much, and they're having to mortgage the much that they have in order still to be able to eat. And they're worried that everything is going to run out. And then there's another group, and they're probably intersecting circles, who are under pressure to pay the taxes to the king. And then there's the wealthy, who are lending the money. They are in the business of taking land from others with interest. They're even taking children and families as payment. It wasn't unlawful for the Jews to lend money to each other, but it was really clear that they were to charge no interest. That they were to be kind and generous in the way that they led. Deuteronomy 24 says this, When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. You know, this is the, it's not been paid, therefore I'm going to bust into your house and I'm going to nick all the stuff that's of worth and take your telly, basically. I mean, that's the modern equivalent, isn't it? Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. There's a, there's a way that they were supposed to relate to one another that even though they were making loans and they were to be without interest, they were supposed to be generous and kind and loving. And this is not what is happening here. If the neighbor is poor, poor verse 12, do not... Go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Look after your neighbor's well-being, even if you are making a loan to them. You see, they weren't supposed to operate how everyone else was operating. They were supposed to be a distinct community. God's community. In fact, this was one of the reasons why they'd gone into exile. Because they weren't caring for the poor. They weren't looking out for one another. And Nehemiah, when he hears this, Nehemiah becomes angry. I don't think this means that he sinned, although he might have done, because it doesn't say that. But anger in itself is not a sin. Ephesians 4.26 says this, In your anger, do not sin. And the Old Testament regularly talks about God being slow to anger and rich in love. Even our Heavenly Father is angry sometimes. And Nehemiah, on hearing the plight of the people, is angry. It's worth noting, though, that it wasn't the building of the wall that caused the problem. It didn't create these problems. It revealed them, as one commentator said. When we press forward with any project as a church community, 
some of the things that are pre-existing conditions that are wrong, whether they're injustice or grumbles or poor relationships, some of those things as we press forward into any project will bubble to the surface. And when they do, not if they do, what we need to do is take them head on. But projects cannot only bring out the grumbles and the things that are wrong. They can also bring out the best in people. I don't know whether it's just church leaders that do this, but I regularly look out at this church family and I think, what an amazing group of people. What a, what a skill set. What a set of, of passions and drives you have. And as we engage in all sorts of different projects together and lean into different things, those things, God draws those good things out of us as well. And he sets us to work with our different skills and our different passions. Well, once Nehemiah had heard the great outcry, what does he do? Well, he calls a meeting like any good church leader would. Uh, a great assembly. He's pondered these things. Yes, he was angry, but he's also taken time to reflect. And he calls a large meeting. He gathers everyone together to deal with this head on. And he calls out the injustices. He calls people back to the things that God had called them to. He says that they're to stop charging interest. They're to give back those profits and more. And then he, he does the thing that you never want to see if you're a part of the ancient world as he shakes the dust off his robe. And he says, if you don't sort this out, this is how God is going to treat you. He will shake you as dust off his robe. It's the equivalent of shaking the dust off your feet as you leave a village in the New Testament. And the people respond. And I think one of the reasons why they respond is that actually Nehemiah is a great example. He's a man that is worth following. You see, being a governor was an extraordinary place of privilege. But Nehemiah had used his position not to help himself, but to help others. You see, the primary project for Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the wall. And he is completely devoted to this work. Not because he wants to build a museum to the Jerusalem that once was. But because he's in service of the living God. And he wants to see his people set right. He's also taken on the external opposition of chapter 4. And now he tackles the internal injustices that led to the outcry. But here is a man who leads by example. He doesn't lord his position over others. In fact, it says that he pays his own way rather than making excessive demands on the people. And it's interesting that the feasting still carries on. 
even though there is hardship. Nehemiah regularly holds feasts for up to 150 Jews and officials in addition to the others from the surrounding area. So the party was bigger than 150. I mean, that's quite a feast. Notice that even in the context of the work and the problems and the famine, the feasting still carries on. But it's shared with others. Others are welcomed in. He's not sitting there becoming a fat cat off the land. So what about us? What about us here at All Saints? Well, we've got a a vision in this place to be a church on the way. And um, I was explaining this to someone who I saw during the week, who we know from a previous church. And it was... What, what I found really helpful about it was how easy it was to articulate. You know, Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And us, the placement here of being on the Cots, Cotswold Way, but us being invited to follow the way of Jesus Christ. It, it's not a complicated vision. And the reason why it's not a complicated vision is because the gospel's not complicated. We don't need something clever or smart. We just need something that calls us back to being disciples of Jesus Christ. That reminds us of why we're here. And the focus of our church vision is on discipleship. With those five habits. To read and to pray and to join a small group. To be committed to coming to a a worshipping community and to give, to live generously. You could highlight those five habits in lots of different ways, but there are five just to start us off. It's a simple call to follow the way of Jesus Christ. So how does the rock project fit in the context of this call to discipleship? Well, I don't know whether any of you were at the APCM in 2018, but in kind of wrestling with what language we might use, I put this image on the screen. And it's one that I've lived with, but it's not necessarily very helpful, except on occasions like this, to bring back out. You see, if discipleship is the core of what we do, As in Matthew 28, go and make disciples and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. If this is the core of what we're supposed to do, because it leads to everything else, then discipleship contains everything. If you're a disciple, you worship the living God. If you're a disciple, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, who's the way, the truth, and the life. If you're a disciple, you keep a short account with others. If you're a disciple, you care for those in your neighborhood and you care about justice around the world. Why? Because you're following Jesus Christ and that's what he does. So discipleship kind of contains everything and should be at the heart of of everything we do. But as I unpacked this image in 2018, the idea was very simple. If it's three or four of you meeting in your home, then you need very little resource in order to support you. But as things grow, you have to get a bit more intentional about worship and prayer. 
You have to get more intentional about your outreach. You have to be more intentional about youth and children's work and pastoral work. And so these things grow. And with each new thing that you take on, you have to be more intentional about these things. But as the church grows, there are also then some supporting things that come with it. And those are buildings and communication and administration. You know, if it's just four or five of you meeting in your front room, then you can organize the whole of that church on WhatsApp. It's easy. Yeah? But the moment there are 100, 200, 400 people, it gets a bit more complicated. And we have to do things like websites and news sheets and emails and, and charity commission trustees reports. You know, and safeguarding and, and health and safety and all that stuff. And those supporting things become incredibly important. Because when someone walks into the building, we want them not just to meet a nice historic building, but we want them to encounter Jesus Christ. And we want them to become disciples of Jesus Christ. So folks, the Rock Project is not the focus. But it's hugely important. Why? Because we want to reimagine all of this for the kingdom of God. Reimagining our church for the kingdom. Because we know that as we do that, as we shape this resource, it'll help us to point even more people to Jesus Christ. But the focus is on making disciples. Let me come into land with four things that we might take away from this chapter in Nehemiah. The first thing is this. As we embark on a very specific project in terms of reimagining our buildings here, so that they provide a welcome, a witness, and a wonderful place to worship, we can expect there to be problems along the way. And there'll be all sorts of problems. There'll be external problems. There'll be conflict with one another. There'll be things where we get distracted. And we need to then confront those problems. And where those things come up, we must just take them head on. To talk to one another. To listen to one another. To learn from one another. I remember when I started my curacy, one of the things that I was really, really bad at was dealing with conflict. In fact, uh, whenever there was conflict or something very difficult to handle, I would uh, try and deal with it and then just burst into tears. It was quite embarrassing, really, actually. <laughs> um, and I followed my training incumbent round for... Uh, three years and watched how he handled it. And he did just this. He was not afraid of the problems. And whenever he found a problem, he would simply go and stand in the middle of it without knowing what the answer was. And he'd listen to God and he'd listen to people. And I followed him around. And he helped me to learn, to begin to learn to do the same kind of thing. 
Third thing is this, watch for the small things. You know, as we focus on discipleship and as we tackle this project to shape this church for the kingdom, we still need to watch for the small things in our own lives and our life as a community. How we handle money, what we look at on the internet, what our thought life is like. Are we caring for others? Are we looking out for the poor and the marginalized? Or are we just walking by? And the last thing is this. I've put the word kingdom flip up there, which needs explaining. You see, every opportunity has the potential to be something that can be realized for the kingdom. Every bump in the road that will come has the opportunity to become something that brings glory to the living God. And what we need to be in the habit of doing is flipping those things over so that rather than seeing the problem, we have our eyes on the King of Kings and we start to set everything to work for the glory of God. I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you that you are good and that you are faithful. And Lord, you, you know the journey that has been to get us to this point. And you know the journey that will be. And Lord, help us to keep on coming back to you. To seek first your kingdom. And to follow you step by step, day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.